It's time for Blessed to Play on EWTN Radio, uncovering the role that faith plays in the lives of sports professionals from around the country. And now, here's your host, Ron Meyer. Fire score! My guest today is Jason Romano. He's a former ESPN producer. He's now a consultant, public speaker, and author. And he's the author of the book, Live to Forgive, Moving Forward, When Those We Love Hurt Us. Jason puts into print his personal journey of forgiving his alcoholic father through sharing his own story. Jason invites readers to enter into their own messy journeys of forgiveness and to fully feel their pain, evaluate their pain, and transform their pain, and ultimately forgive those who cause their pain. Here to talk about his book is... Jason Romano. Jason, thanks for coming on. I do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate being here. Well, this was a tough read because you went through a lot of pain as a young boy. And as I mentioned in the opening, your dad struggled with alcoholism for a large part of his life. And I guess when you have alcoholism, it's always a struggle. But when did you notice as a boy, because you don't know any better when you're growing up that this is a problem? When did it surface in you as you mature that I think dad has a problem with alcohol? Yeah, that's a great question because it wasn't when I was a boy at all, really. I mean, when I say boy, I mean young boy, probably in the seven, eight, nine, ten-year-old range. I really didn't know that anything was technically wrong with my dad. I mean, my parents got divorced when I was five, almost six years old. So that alone tells you something isn't right but you don't think about that you just kind of you know delve into the delve into the things that you're interested in which was for me sports and playing outside with my friends and the regular things that kids like to do uh, it wasn't until probably teenage early teenage years i would say 13 14 when i noticed um something was up with my father and it wasn't good and i think the reason i noticed because as most teenagers are um, we're selfish. I mean, we're, mm-hmm. we're selfish by nature as humans in general. But when my dad's alcoholism started affecting things I wanted to do, that's when I started to get upset and understand that something was going on here. Uh, that example is depicted in the book when I um, was getting ready to go to see my favorite baseball team, the New York Mets, play a baseball game. This is in the late mid to late 80s when the Mets were at the highest of highs with that team that won the World Series in 1986, and my dad was going to take me to a game. And the night before, he had gotten drunk and uh, and came home really inebriated. And I saw him, and I just, I mean, I was so upset and so mad and so angry at him, and I didn't know how to really process my anger. So I just retreated into um, into the bathroom of all places. I shut the door, I locked the door, and I. I was just crying my eyes out and yelling at him through this wall, through this door to, um, you know, to just stop drinking. Why couldn't you stay sober for me? I can't believe this. We're supposed to go to the game tomorrow and you're acting like this. It was just a lot of anger mm-hmm. towards him. But I think it surfaced because it now started affecting the things that I wanted to do as a selfish young kid. Uh, but certainly it wasn't healthy and certainly it was very apparent that something wasn't right with him. And he wasn't a happy drunk by any stretch of the imagination. He would get belligerent during these binges of alcohol. And um, 
It would lead to verbal abuse towards you, lies, and uh, all sorts of stuff that you had to deal with growing up. And um, did you suppress all this growing up, or how did you deal with it as just trying to be a normal, healthy kid? Yeah, I mean, I gave credit to my mom uh, in the book, and I give credit to my mom today still, uh, because she was the one who who recognized that if anything was going to happen to her three boys because of her ex-husband, um, she was going to do everything she could to prevent that. And she saw it kind of festering a little bit with the way my dad would act, especially when he was drunk. And so she would, in essence, protect us. Um, she had us in counseling when I was around that same age, 14 years old. We would go to a counselor, me and my two younger brothers, with her. Um, but she also allowed us to have stability and a normal childhood, you know, the ability normal. What I, when I say normal, I mean, you know, the ability to go and play sports and go to the movies and, you know, get toys and things like that. When you're little, I, my grandparents were a huge part of that too, but my mom was the one that kept a stability in the home discipline and allowed us, like I said, to have a normal life, but also kept us from, uh, going anywhere further than we might have gone mm -hmm. had we spent a lot more time with my father. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it was. I mean, I really didn't, I don't think I ever processed the anger. I think I just would probably do what I did even into my adult life, which was kind of scream back and yell back at him. And um, yeah, there was never really, when I looked at my father, there was never really a healthy respect for him mm -hmm. or um, I don't know, an appreciation that he was my dad. I would guess or venture that I, I would have told you that I loved him, but uh, I could tell you that I definitely did not like him, um, especially when, you know, when he was sober or when he was drinking, because when he was sober, he was at least somewhat uh, charming, if you will. But when he was drinking, he was very, very angry. And so I really didn't know how to process that. Usually for me, it meant escaping or just disappearing from him. Uh, the less time I spent with him, the, the better. Uh, and that was. And that would continue on as I grew into adulthood. When he was sober, I was fine with spending time with him. When he was drinking, which was quite often, uh, I didn't want to be around that. So I would just retreat. Blessed to play Ron Meyer chatting with Jason Romano. He's a former ESPN producer and author of the book Live to Forgive. Now, you said this. You said the goal of this book is to help you fully feel your emotions and objectively evaluate your pain that you can trans transform your wound and enter into the peaceful freedom of forgiveness. So many times we repress and suppress everything, but you you write in this book that it's healthy to get it out. That's part of the healing process. It was. Um, <clears throat> let me just say that that wasn't something that I just figured out right away. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, I could tell you that's something that I'm not 100% fully figured out today. Uh, but I know that that's what worked for me in being able to finally forgive my father, because there was a, a long process uh, of a lot of that anger and bitterness that I had in me. You know, I kind of stored that up. And, you know, I thought I had forgiven my dad many times just because I allowed him back into my life. But, you know, I had a lot of anger and every time that he would drink again or say something <clears throat> abusive or terrible to be about me or about someone else that I care about, uh, I would resort to, in essence, turning back into him. Mm -hmm. You know, I would bring that anger 
right back on him. And that meant, as I look back now, clearly that I had not forgiven him. So it was this process that I had to go through, you know, the the feeling, the pain and evaluating the trauma. I think that was something that as I got older into my 30s, that was pretty easy for me to do because I had a lot of people that I talked to about my father. Yeah. But the transformation of the wound that I had suffered and entering into that place of forgiveness, that was the hardest part, especially the forgiveness, you know, end of this. I mean, I wrote a whole book on forgiveness and quite honestly, Ron, that's the, without a doubt, the hardest part for me was Mm -hmm. to finally come to a place to forgive my father. But that was the process I went through. And, you know, as even a person of faith, I mean, my faith is the most important thing in my life, my faith in God. And, you know, that if you read anywhere in in God's word in the Bible about forgiveness, it's a Mm non-negotiable. You're supposed to forgive every single time. That's what Jesus says in, in Matthew, in the book of Matthew. And yet, I had read that, I had heard that for many years, even as I got serious about my faith and still could not put that into practice into my own life because it was just difficult. And because I was living a life of, of human emotions towards my father and not a life of, um, of forgiveness, which I believe comes from a spiritual connection with your heavenly father, because that forgiveness, um, you know, we can say we do it, but, and I, like I said, I probably said many times, yeah, I've forgiven my dad, my dad, but those wounds fester up quickly. And the true test is when, you know, your back is against the wall and, you know, something resurfaces from your past, you know, how is your reaction? How are your emotions through that now? Um, for me, that's the test that I knew I had failed many times when I had thought I had forgiven my dad and I clearly hadn't. Yeah. It's a challenging dichotomy when you have to de- uh, distance yourself from the emotions when you're forgiving, because when you're thinking about forgiveness, those emotions are coming to the forefront. And I believe the grace that God can give probably could help us to do that, although it's, it's certainly uh, very difficult. You reference in the book the movie Hoosiers, and Norman Dale, obviously played by Gene Hackman, gave Shooter, who was played by Dennis Hopper, a second chance. He was an alcoholic. Did you feel that uh, you always had to keep giving your dad a chance? And uh, did you become codependent in a certain way? Yeah, I think <clears throat> I remember hearing that word when I was, you know, in high school and college, codependency, because that's a word used quite often in the in the therapeutic um, world or the or the counseling world. And I didn't really understand what that meant. Mm-hmm. Right. But I knew as I got older, as they started to explain to me what codependency meant, which was giving second and third and fourth chances and kind of sort of looking the other way, if you will, on all the mistakes that took place. It was sort of an enabling that would happen. And I don't think that I had that as much as my grandparents had that. Now, my grandparents um, took care of us when my mom was working three jobs and they are amazing, but they are also my dad's parents. Mm -hmm. And yet they were the ones that were there for us when my dad wasn't. I mean, I dedicated the book to my grandfather, my late grandfather, who was um, the greatest man I've ever known. And so they were around quite a bit, but they were also very codependent with my dad, which is their son and their only son. So I almost don't blame them for being codependent because that's your child that you're watching kind of screw up his whole life. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't think I found myself codependent. I was very protected, especially as I got older and I got married uh, and even then having my daughter, 
who's now 17, I was very protective of them with my dad. Um, I may have been codependent in the sense of giving him other chances to, like I said earlier, allowing him back into my life, whether that's just taking a phone call from him or seeing him in person. I don't know if that's full codependence, though, but I do know that I had given him many second and third and fourth chances. There's yeah. there's many pictures that exist um, that I did not include in the book intentionally, but there's many pictures that exist of me with my father during all of this, mm-hmm. you know, in the early to mid 2000s and all the way into when my grandfather passed in 2007 and my grandmother, his mother in 2010. And even after that, there are pictures of us together. But. Those to me were moments when I would spend time with him, hoping that he was getting sober. And then ultimately it wasn't the case until 2013. And that's when he finally got sober. But for me, it was, it wasn't really codependent as much as it was just, I think, wishing or hoping that he would finally just get sober. Uh, It's funny when, when I talk to people about this and I'm kind of ashamed to even say this sometimes, but I say that. I wish that my prayer for my father for so many years was to give his life up to Christ and become a Christian and and become a follower of Jesus. But it wasn't. My prayer was just for him to get sober. And so, you know, I don't know if I prayed the right prayer, but that I think allowed me to be disappointed when my dad would continually get drunk. Now, as he got older, he also was struggling with depression and mental health issues, which when you combine the alcoholism and the anxiety and the depression, it was not good. It was a recipe for disaster. But, you know, I didn't pray for my dad to become a Christian. I just prayed for him to get sober. And maybe I wasn't praying the right prayer when I think about it, you know, looking back now. All right, let's take a break. On the other side, we'll talk more about Jason Romano's book, Live to Forgive, Moving Forward When Those We Love Hurt Us. You're listening to Blessed to Play. to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Welcome back to Blessed to Play. Ron Meyer joined today by Jason Romano, and uh, quite a career he had at ESPN as a producer, I believe, for 17 or 18 years, and now he's doing public speaking, consulting, and he's an author, and we're talking about his book today, Live to Forgive, Moving Forward When Those We Love Hurt Us. It takes you on the plight of Jason's pain dealing with an alcoholic father and uh, how to handle it in a very human way, but also in a spiritual way as well. And Jason, you do this reflection, which I thought was beautiful, on death and resurrection, because there is that with regards to your dad and the whole alcoholism and how it affected you. And there was a Christian psychologist. This was an interesting quote. He said, Christians are afraid to fear the somber. It's always, yeah, and that's so true that we always got to be this upbeat, joy-filled, kind of like show it on our face all the time. But it's kind of a facade, I would think. Talk about the death and resurrection part of dealing with your dad's alcoholism and how it brought you to a type of resurrection. 
Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, that is the essence and the crux of our faith, right? I mean, the the death and resurrection of Jesus, the death of ourselves, and the resurrection of ourselves in Christ as followers of Christ. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's so important to understand that, um, that in many ways, when you think about it, there is no resurrection without the crucifixion and no rebirth without death. And so this journey of faith that I had taken for so many years uh, and still continue to take here 20 years later, um, it's one where it's really about dying to myself every day, right? And, And living for Christ and you know, that John 3.30 verse that I love to read, and it's one of my favorite verses about he must increase, talking about Jesus in my life, and I must decrease. You know, decrease and death, it's just different words, if you will, but I think they mean the same thing in this context, is the idea of our decreasing in self and the increase of Christ. And yeah, the death and resurrection, it's this spiritual take, right, on feeling, because we have to sort of die to our own feelings here. Um, you know, I hear it talked about a lot in faith that, you know, our faith can't be about feelings. You know, our feelings are going to come and go. Our feelings are going to ebb and flow. Our feelings are going to go up and down. And sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad. But at the same time, that's not what Jesus is. He said, I'm the same yesterday, today and forever. Uh, and, you know, that's where we have to remember that our feelings, although important, when it comes to the greater purpose of Christ and who he is, they're not as important. And I think when I think about forgiveness, though, when you're choosing to forgive, it is a spiritual decision to die to any feelings that you have from the past. And remembering that it's not this forgiveness is not about how I feel mm-hmm. or about what the other person has done. It's about Christ and who he is. And he's forgiven us every single day. So for me, I have to understand that my forgiveness is not about my dad. It's not about my feelings. Because trust me, if it was, uh, I wouldn't, I wasn't feeling that forgiveness for many, many years. Mm-hmm. And there might be people listening to this who are telling, who are thinking, you know, I'm not feeling that either. Uh, but forgiveness is, is not about the other person. It's not about our feelings. It's about us being free. From those feelings, being free from the pain, being free from the trauma, from the from the um, the wounds that we have suffered. It's us being free from having that bitterness and anger inside of us, because when we hold it in, it's almost like we're entrapping ourselves right into these sort of invisible chains that hold us down, that bind us down. And we have this anger and bitterness that when it festers up, it becomes like this poison inside of us. And so that's where the sort of death and resurrection, I think, come in is when we forgive, it creates this freedom and we sort of live in this resurrection of Christ and this freedom of Christ and this freedom of forgiveness that can only come from Jesus. But this freedom of forgiveness of understanding that, you know what, I don't have to walk around bitter and angry anymore. It doesn't change how I feel about the situation. It doesn't necessarily change what happened in the past. It doesn't even change what the other person's doing, whether that person has remorse or not. It just means that you can walk in freedom. And that's what happens when we get saved, when we become followers of Christ. We walk through this freedom, in this freedom. And God talks about casting our our sin, our messed up moments, as far as the East is from the West. That's what happens when we forgive. 
you know, we don't necessarily forget because we're human, we're not God, but we can walk forward in this freedom very much like the way we can walk forward because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Yeah, very well said, and, and that, that unforgiveness actually hurts us more than the person we need to forgive. <laughs> so, yeah, and we don't think of it on those terms because we're only dealing with our pain. And the common theme, one of the common themes of this book is to be upfront about what you're feeling. Don't, don't make believe it doesn't exist because you have to go through that process. It's not an overnight process. You're still dealing with the, the trauma that you experienced as, as a boy and even a young man. But I, this quote kind of that was in the book, uh, I don't know, this kind of gave you the impetus to, you know, be very passionate about having a, a good career with ESPN or just following your dreams. But you said the abusers in our lives, those who constantly tear us down and hurt us, can do a lot of horrible things, things that we can't control, but we should never be deterred from pursuing our own passions and our dreams. Because you could have been so depressed and so downtrodden by your childhood, and many people are, and they turn to very addictive behaviors. You chose, which is amazing to me, you chose not to abuse alcohol. You chose to run the other way from it. But was there a eureka moment in your life when you said, hey, I'm not gonna, I'm going to go pursue my dreams and not let my father, what he's done, all the verbal abuse, how he tried to hold me back, let that affect me to the point where I can't do anything in this world, but just feel pity for myself? I don't know if there was a one specific moment when I think about it, but I do know that, you know, as I got out of high school, see, it's funny because I tell people the career path that I took and I went on in many ways was because of my dad. So I was kind of fighting this push-pull of, you know, my dad loves sports. Mm -hmm. So I love sports, right? And so I watched sports and I played sports and that all stems from my dad's love of sports. The same with my brothers. So we have this love of sports, and I talk about it in the beginning of the book, the, the very thing that should have brought us together, which is sports, tore us apart as mm -hmm. we got older. Mm -hmm. But yet at the same time, that love for sports never waned. I think it was that love for sports around my dad that would make me angry. But I still loved sports going into high school. I mean, even to today, I still love sports, of course. Not like I used to, I don't think, but I still have a, a big passion for it, and it's Part of my job now with Sports Spectrum, but I think as I got older, that was my my passion was to be a broadcaster and work in sports uh, of some sort, whether it was television or radio. And you know, I was grateful to do that for 17 years at ESPN. But I think it was when I was in college, you know, and again, college was a big point for me because I went away only a couple hours, but I went away not only to escape being near my dad, but also to pursue my, my passion. And, you know, the only time that I would think about my father, I guess, in, in terms of, you know, not wanting to become him, I think was when I was, when I was pursuing this job. Uh, it was also when I was around people who were drinking or, you know, alcohol, which you really can't escape when you're in a college setting for sure. Um, so I was around plenty, plenty of parties and plenty of people who wanted to have their, their alcohol, and that would always trigger inside of me, don't do it because you'll become like your father. So mm -hmm. I was scared just to even pick up a, a glass of, you know, whatever it was, alcohol, wine, vodka, beer, you name it. I was, I was afraid to try that. 
I did try it, but I was afraid in many ways that I would like it and turn into my dad. Uh, at the same time, I had this passion and this desire to want to be a broadcaster. And so I was just kind of laser focused on going after that in college, especially my last two years of college. And I don't know, by that time, I think by the time I hit my mid-20s, 22, 23, 24, the alcohol part was kind of, all right, I'm never going to. I'm not going to become an alcoholic like my dad. I might have, you know, codependent tendencies or addictions to other things, but I'm not going to become an alcoholic like my father. Mm -hmm. But I didn't see the, the, the path of becoming a broadcaster, really. I mean, there were so many breaks that took place for me to even end up at ESPN. But just the idea of doing something that I love. Um, I don't know. Many times I, I kind of thought, Ron, that I was spiting my dad by having the success that I was having and achieving what I was achieving. I know he was proud of me, but at the same time, you know, I, I just had to distance myself enough where I couldn't get really close with him or especially when I got to ESPN, I, I wish that he could have really seen me in my element and had this, this enjoyment that I got to have because we both love sports so much. But in many ways I was just, especially when he was at his worst moments, I was just glad that I didn't turn into him, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then when I became a dad, it became even more evident that I didn't want to become him as my, as a father. And I wanted to do everything I could to give my daughter what my dad wasn't able to give me. Well, I'll tell you what, this was a, uh, a great book to read. And if any of you out there struggle with something in your childhood, it doesn't have to be an alcoholic parent, but you could substitute that for anything that led to trauma or addiction that affected you. Get this book, Live to Forgive, Moving Forward When Those We Love Hurt Us. I think Jason gives a very real um, journey on how to cope. And sometimes we learn by the example of others what they've gone through to help in our own healing process and certainly puts a spiritual dimension on who we are as a child of God. To get the book, you could go to www.jasonromano.com or you could simply go to Amazon and get Live to Forgive, Moving Forward When Those We Love Hurt Us. Jason, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the book, but I enjoyed speaking with you as well and uh, for taking on this challenge of really being open with the public on your trauma and pain. And I'm sure it's uh, helping those who read it. And uh, thank you for joining us right here on Blessed to Play. Ron, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, Blessed to Play fans, check us out on the web at www.blessedtoplay.com. That's blessed, the number two play.com. You can like us on Facebook and hit us up on Twitter at Blessed to Play. For Jason Romano, I'm Ron Meyer. We'll catch you next time right here on Blessed to Play. You've been listening to Blessed to Play with host Ron Meyer on the EWTN Global Catholic Network. If you have a question or comment about today's show, feel free to email us at info at blessedtoplay.com. That's blessed, the number two, play.com. You can also connect with the show on the web at www.blessedtoplay.com. Again, that's blessed, the number two, play.com. Join us again next time for Blessed to Play on the EWTN Global Catholic Network.